Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. And now, sorry, I'm technologically challenged. I blame it on the, not having an Atari 2600 back in the 80s. Am I speaking a foreign language? Does anybody remember the 2600, the little Atari? Yeah. Okay, so this sermon is going to be a little different than what you may be used to, hopefully in a good way. Um, and the reason is, because one of the things that I really wanted to say this week uh, just didn't fit in with what I wanted to do uh, as far as writing the sermon. So I have a little demonstration I want to show you before that. And you'll have to forgive me for going up here, but I'm really afraid of that flame. And you'll understand that in a second. So the reason this um, thing that I want to show you is worth doing is because I think it teaches us a lot about scripture that we're not going to learn any other way. Can we, um, is it possible to bring up the scripture up above us again? It doesn't matter, we can look in our pew Bibles if not. But. Well, anyway, if you look in your pew Bibles, you're going to notice something kind of, um, page 442, uh, there's this strange thing that they decided to do when they started doing English translations, and it goes like this. Sometimes you'll see that Lord is written in all capital letters, and sometimes you'll see that it's written with just a capital L. And there's an actual, uh, it took me years to learn this, but there's an actual code here. And that's because this stands for the name of the Lord. And we'll talk about that in one second. While this stands for the word Adonai, which just means kind of master or Lord in a more generic sense. 
Are you, are you seeing that in the, yeah, it, it's right there. So, this one we know about, but let's look at the other. Let me just write this out real quick. This is um, the name of God in Hebrew. And just so you know, uh, Hebrew reads from right to left. So we're, we're always going this way. Um, but let me write it down a second time. And I will show you why in just a moment. And that's why I have this card. Because um, when Hebrew started, they did not have vowels. I know that's a little strange to understand, but maybe in the last couple of years when we, uh, I don't know, certain web things do this, where they just leave out the vowels and you'll just see like element, L-M-N-T. Well, when we go about writing the name of the Lord, um, what we're talking about is transliteration taking a foreign language, another language, and turning it into English letters. And so a lot of things can't go from directly from one alphabet to another. So um, we have Yoth, which looks like nothing, but is actually a pretty significant letter. Hey, which is just basically H. Vav, which can be either Let's see, how can we do this? So that the two H's, I hope this makes sense in just a second for you, but I think it will. Yoth can be either Y or J. So we got a Y or a J. Vav can be either a V or a W. It's a letter kind of in between. So, if we add in the vowels, uh, let's see. This is Yahweh. We choose a Y. This is a... Um, it, we'd be choosing the W, and this is a small e, so Yahweh. And this is the important thing. If we chose the other way, and chose a J, and chose um, the lowercase e, and we chose an O for the vowel instead, and a V instead of a W, we have Jehovah. So that's why, um, in the same way that sometimes Hanukkah gets a little messed up, uh, Yahweh and Jehovah are really the same Hebrew. And you'll, the reason that we're talking about this, um, you'll see in the scripture there, is that this psalm um, this may seem strange, but this psalm alternates between Yahweh, the personal name of God, and Adonai, um, a less specific uh, honorific, repeatedly throughout the psalm. 
Kathleen Norris, in her book Amazing Grace, tells a story about how she used to teach elementary school children about poetry. She writes, once a little boy wrote a poem called The Monster Who Was Sorry. He began by admitting that he hates it when his father yells at him. His response in the poem is to throw his sister down the stairs and then to wreck his room and finally to wreck the whole town. The poem concludes, then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done that. This is a nice light way for us to dip, in, dip our toes into the theme of this psalm, although I'm sure it didn't feel that way to this little boy. But there's no easy way to get very far into Psalm 130 without noticing that, like the city in this boy's poem, everything is wrecked. And far from avoiding it, the psalmist faces this in his first words, out of the depths. It's important to start out our exploration of this psalm by recognizing what our Song of Confession just said about lamentation, because that's undoubtedly where this psalm starts. It's also important to know that deep waters, whether they be an ocean or a flood, suggested life-threatening danger to the ancient Israelite. Think about other places in the Bible that we hear of deep water. The formless void at the beginning of the creation story. The flood of judgment that Noah survived because he listened when God told him to build an ark. The whale that swallowed Jonah and took him to the bottom of the ocean. Simply put, this is meant to communicate a realization of wrongdoing that echoes these other deep waters and feels so separate from God, it's like death. In verse 3, the psalmist also offers us a rhetorical question. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? I'm sure you don't realize this, I know I didn't until this week, but this question is actually asked again in the last book of the Bible. In Revelation 6.16, we read, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In both cases, of course, the obvious implied answer is nobody. Maybe this scripture is what Paul was thinking of when he wrote famously in Romans 3.11, none is righteous, no, not one. Now I'm going to head down what will seem like a bit of a rabbit hole at this point, because the question of sin is all through the psalm. And as Christians, it feels like a bit of a linguistic trick, a little too much like an ostrich with its head in the sand, for me to just look at Psalm 130's meaning as a marching song for pilgrims, and then suddenly apply it to us and the New Testament like it's a surprising conclusion. I don't know if this applies to any of us this morning, but when most people living in today's postmodern world hear verses like these, they can't help but respond with explanations and excuses. It's kind of amazing, really. As a general rule, I don't walk around confronting people with their sin. But nevertheless, I still hear quote-unquote normal people responding to the idea of sinfulness fairly often. And it usually goes something like, what kind of God would hold people to such an impossible standard? 
or, well, nobody's perfect, but he did a lot of good things in his life. Or the always popular, well, I just try to be as good a person as I can. And most of these phrases end with either the spoken or the implied phrase, well, if that's not good enough, how can he be a loving God anyway? But what do these people actually mean by the word good? What they're really referencing is the idea of relative truth, that what is right or wrong depends on our perspective, on where we're standing. When you Google relativism, it comes up with lots of variations of a cartoon. One person's looking at a large six painted on the ground and says so. From the other side of the numeral, another person says with equal fervency, no, nine. The implication being that they're both right. The truth is relative to their perspective. People must have been saying the same kind of things back in 1952 that they do now, because listen to what C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity has to say about this idea. If no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring Christian morality to Nazi morality. In fact, we all do believe that some moralities are better than others. The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. But the standard that measures two things is something different from either. You are in fact comparing them both with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as a real right, independent of what people think, and that some ideas get nearer to that real right than others. Or put it this way, if your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something some real morality for them to be true about. The reason why your idea of New York can be truer or less true than mine is that New York is a real place, existing quite apart from what either of us thinks. If when each of us said New York, each means merely the town I am imagining in my own head, how could one of us have truer ideas than the other? Now, that's brilliant writing and the best explanation of relative truth that I know. And I have been a fan of C.S. Lewis since I was 15. But even I will admit that this sounds a little philosophical. So let me also tell you a little story that I know I've shared here before, but it's worth repeating because it illustrates this popular notion of sin and judgment so well. What if God announced one day that instead of the biblical way, from that point on, anyone who could swim across the Atlantic Ocean would get into heaven? And on the first morning after this announcement, on the furthest beach east in the United States, West Quaddy Head, Maine, yes, I looked that up, I don't know that off the top of my head, three people show up. I'm standing on the beach with Michael Phelps and Diana Nyad and we all start off at the same time. Now, I've been swimming in some form for most of my life, but I wouldn't say I'm what anybody would call a serious swimmer. 
But if eternal bliss was at stake, I think I could maybe swim five miles before my body was completely exhausted and simply stopped working. Michael Phelps, we all know what a swimmer he is. I don't know all the particular distances and times of his world records, but he's at least one of the fastest swimmers in the world. With heaven on the line, I'd bet Phelps could quickly make it to 25 miles. Let's even give him the benefit of the doubt and say 50. And that would be amazing. Far, far better than I did. In 2013, Diana Nyad successfully swam from Cuba to Florida. She was 64 at the time. It was 110 miles and took her 53 hours. An incredible accomplishment. And let's assume she's only gotten stronger since then. With all that's at stake, maybe she could make it 200 miles. But see, the thing is, it's 2,640 miles from West Quaddy Head to the coast of Ireland. And the only way any of the three of us is getting there is if a boat comes along, pulls our exhausted bodies out of the water, and carries us the rest of the way. That boat is Jesus. Pulling us out of the water is what we call redemption. And a ride to the finish line is what we call grace. You see, you may be able to resist sinning better than I can. I might be able to hold out longer than someone who just came to Christ yesterday. But here's the important thing. It's completely irrelevant. See, sin isn't an opinion God has of us. He's not throwing shade, as the kids say. Just like swimming across the ocean, there's an actual objective measurement here. What Lewis calls the real right, that you either meet or you don't. Your intentions don't matter. The thoughts you have while you swim don't matter. How hard you're trying doesn't matter. And it doesn't really matter if you come closer to perfection than I do because neither of us will reach it. We both drown. Martin Luther knew about praying out of the depths. He was supposed to become a lawyer, but he was in such a terrible thunderstorm that he promised God he'd become a monk if he survived. The Reformation happened because as a monk, he was so consumed by his own sinfulness that he searched the Bible over and over looking for a solution. Luther once said that the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. He also called this, Psalm 130, a Pauline psalm because it aligns so well with the Apostles' New Testament understanding of sin and grace. And there's no question about it. With declarations like verse 8's, He himself will redeem Israel, it's hard not to see Jesus in this psalm. So let's stop talking about sin and think about redemption, God's plan to rescue us. In verse 4 we read, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. We can all understand the part about the guards here, can't we? Whether you're guarding a city, sitting up with a sick person, or overseeing a bunch of kids at a slumber party, 
you know what it means to long to see the sun in the morning. But it's not just about how much the guards want to see the sun. They also have complete faith that the sun will rise. The psalmist believes with his whole being in God's word and its promises. So in the face of our realization of sin, thankfully, there is forgiveness. And even in the depths, the psalmist recognizes God's character. He has enough belief in this character to faithfully ask Yahweh in verse 2 to hear him. He knows the Lord well enough to remind him, or perhaps to remind his fellow pilgrims when they read this psalm, in verse 4 and verse 7, that with God there is forgiveness and redemption. But let me note that for the Jewish pilgrims ascending toward Jerusalem, the confession and forgiveness they're thinking of undoubtedly refers to the offering of sacrifices by priests in the temple. But we're a Christian church in the 21st century, and we can't help but see Christ in this psalm. That's no surprise since Jesus himself, especially during the crucifixion, was the first to suggest that many psalms and other verses in what would come to be known as the Old Testament were prophetically referring to him. There is, I'm sure, a big theological word for these Old Testament glimpses of Christ, but I didn't bother to look it up because what good would it do us? But what is important is realizing that they occur. Now, there are 66 books in the Old Testament, and just talking about Christ's use of the Psalms to talk about himself would take us all morning and well into the afternoon. If you'd like to dive deep into this, there's a well-regarded book by a former Gordon Conwell professor that I'd be happy to recommend to you after the service. But let me just share the first of these with you. It comes from Genesis 3.15. While cursing the serpent in the Garden of Eden, God tells the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Not they, which we'd expect when he's talking about offspring, but the singular, he. And like many things we have to take on faith, it doesn't directly say Jesus, but it strongly implies him. Satan certainly did strike his heel, to say the least, but Christ also crushed the head of evil forever. So when verse 8 tells us that he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins, it should make our ears perk up in the same way that Jonah's time in the belly of the whale is a precursor to the crucifixion, which Jesus tells us himself in Matthew 12. The psalmist's statement about God's answer to sin doesn't stop with verse four's declaration that there is forgiveness. Instead, it ends in a specific statement that the Lord will personally redeem Israel. The verb here is yipta. It means not only to redeem, but also to ransom in the sense of paying for release and deliver by any means, according to Strong's concordance. For the Jewish pilgrims that were the intended readers of this song, we can only assume that this meant to bring to mind Israel's rescue from Egypt during Passover. That is, after all, one of the major holidays for which these pilgrims, pilgrimages sorry, to Jerusalem were made. 
But for us, this verse becomes even more personal. Jesus was innocent, yet died to pay the price for our sin. This is the definition of redemption. But maybe we've heard these words too often for them to have any meaning for us anymore. So instead, let me try to knit together a few entertainment references that may get through to you a little better. Lucy and I have recently been watching the Hunger Games movies, and a profoundly redemptive moment comes very early in the first movie. I certainly won't take your time explaining the whole story of the games, but suffice to say, it's not a good thing to be a part of them. So when her little sister is chosen, Katniss Everdeen immediately speaks up, screaming, I volunteer, I volunteer as a tribute. I can't imagine the filmmakers intended it, but that is a metaphor for Jesus, if I've ever seen one. Or what about the Lord of the Rings, specifically in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring? I'm sorry, the first movie. I realize most people don't read these books anymore. When the group is in the mines of Moria and must cross a bridge to continue their fight against evil, Gandalf buys them the necessary time by fighting the fiery and possibly demonic creature that ultimately drags him down into the bowels of the earth with it. This too speaks of redemption, of suffering unimaginable pain in order to save others. Now, I've already confessed to being a big fan of C.S. Lewis, so it shouldn't come as any surprise to you that when I tell you that I think the clearest of all redemptive metaphors is that of Aslan's death in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's so clear, in fact, that I find it hard to believe how popular this series of books is with non-religious people. If you haven't read the books recently, let me quickly refresh your memory. Edmund is the second of the Pevensey children to get into Narnia through the wardrobe. But unlike his sister Lucy, and let me just take a parenthetical, whatever you call a phrase here, you can ask me later, she's not named for the kid in the Chronicles of Narnia. But unlike his sister Lucy, who met a friendly fawn named Mr. Tumnus, Edmund meets the White Witch, the dictator queen who holds the place in eternal winter. After a scene of feasting that made it so many of us wonder what Turkish delight was and want to taste it. Edmund is led down a path that ends in him betraying his own siblings. As a result, later in the book, the evil witch plans to kill the boy at a place called the Stone Table. But the great lion Aslan works out a plan where she will take him instead, though he is completely innocent, and Edmund is obviously guilty. So he turns himself over to her at the appointed time, is bound, then humiliated, and eventually killed, and the army of evil rejoices. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. If you still have your Bible open, you might notice for the first time in this psalm, these last two verses don't use Adonai at all. There's no alternating between the two Hebrew words we talked about in the beginning. Both, both uses of Lord here 
Oh, and this is something I forgot to tell you at the beginning. This is called the Tetragrammaton. That's your big word for the morning, I guess. But that means the personal name of God. Both uses of Lord here in the, these last verses are the Tetragrammaton, the personal name of God. Even the language here is at its most personal. God doesn't just hear us. He doesn't just forgive us. But in the most personal way, he knows we are traitors, knows our guilt, and out of love, gives himself up for us anyway. This is the heart of the matter, the great mystery. And it's also the spot where my boat illustration falls apart. Because Jesus, Jesus isn't just a rescue boat for struggling swimmers who thought they could cross the ocean. He didn't just come along and pull us into one of those happy conga lines where we hold his hand and we both dance. He literally took our place and took punches that were not only meant for us, but that we fully deserved. That is redemption. Let's pray. Our Adonai Yahweh, we believe, but save us from our unbelief. Like the writer of this psalm, I pray that even in the depths, even in those horrible moments when rescue feels like it's impossible, we will still instinctively call out to you and believe that you'll hear us and answer us with mercy. Help us to trust in your word and your promises as much as we trust that the sun will rise in the morning. And thank you. Thank you for personally redeeming us. Amen.